So you remember when I said that these after shows with interviews with people would never be a replacement for my regular content. And I meant that until I uh, got COVID. (laughs) And now I am going to release this after show on a Monday on a regular release day because it didn't really make sense to take Monday off, but then release a Thursday after show. But I can't get an episode out for Monday because I'm banished from society at the moment, and I uh, cannot record. Also, I'm feeling a little under the weather, as COVID tends to do. I'm mostly okay. You could probably hear it in my voice. It's not 100%. Fatigue is probably the main symptom I have that sets us apart from like a regular cold. But that also means after this episode, where you're going to hear basically an after show for a regular episode, I am going to redo an old insight episode because I have all the base research done and I just have to do the updates and add things in and details that I find because, you know, Crime Lines is a little bit more detailed than insight was. So that is the plan. And the hope is that I feel better enough after these next two episodes to just be back to regular content and I won't have to take any more time off or getting creative with releasing content. Also, if you are on Patreon or Apple subscriptions, that also means the Patreon bonus episode is delayed, but I have never missed a month in three years of releasing that bonus content. So it is definitely coming. It's just going to be a little later in the month than I have been getting them out lately. Also, the Patreon and Apple subscriber virtual meetups, thank goodness they're virtual. They are still happening. I can Zoom from anywhere, including my banishment, if I'm not able to be back in my studio by then, but I'm hoping we can just do it down in my studio like usual. I think that's all the updates I have right now. I will be back soon. As soon as I am released from exile, we will be back on schedule with Crime Lines continuing as usual. I hope you enjoy this episode. It does cover the Brandon Lawson case and the recent developments with firsthand accounts from those who were there during the search. So enjoy the episode, and I'll be back when I'm feeling better. In 2013, Brandon Lawson disappeared. For years, his last 911 call was analyzed. In 2022, a team of searchers found items that led to the recovery of remains. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines. This episode is a little bit of a different format than my usual one. Instead of doing a deep dive on the details of a case, what I'm going to do is give you an overview of the case, and then you're going to hear an interview I did with two members of the search team that led to the recovery of what is presumed to be Brandon Lawson's remains. The two people are Whitney and Melissa. They are the hosts of the podcast Colts, Crimes, and Cabernet. They are also good friends of mine. I'm sure a lot of people have listened to coverage of this case. It's one of those cases that is regularly covered on podcasts with deep dives, which is why it's usually not the kind of content I cover here on Crime Lines. There are so many podcasts out there that have done a phenomenal job covering this that I really wouldn't have anything to add to it. 
But after the search party and talking to Whitney and Melissa, I feel like now there's something I can add to this conversation. And that is their firsthand account of what it was like to be on that search party. Even though I'm sure a lot of you already know the basics of this case, I want to give the background to those who may not know or need a refresher on it before we launch into the circumstances of the search and what it was like. And I mean, really what it was like to be there that day. Whitney and Melissa do a great job putting us right with them where you can picture the area, you can feel the wind. And so let's cover the case. And then you'll hear what I mean when we get to the interview. It was August of 2013. 26-year-old Brandon Lawson lived with his girlfriend of 10 years, Ledessa Lofton, and their three children. Having been together since they were in high school, this is a couple that went through a lot of ups and downs as they were so young when they got together and started a family. But they were usually happy and they definitely loved each other. But on August 9th, they had an argument. It wasn't any one thing, but it was the stress of life. Their youngest at the time was an infant. Brandon was working long hours, and he had recently had a lapse in his sobriety, which only compounded the stress. At this point, he had recently taken and passed a drug test, so it looked like he was getting things back on track. Even so, The process of getting sober is hard on a person and their loved ones, and it's very rarely a straight line. So all of this stress came to a head, and around 11.30 p.m., Brandon called his dad and asked if he could go to his house to spend the night. His dad said yes, but only after first encouraging Brandon to just stay home. It was really late at night, and it was a two- to three-hour drive to his dad's house. But Brandon insisted on going, and he left the house about 25 minutes later. Ledessa called Brandon shortly after he left to try to tell him to either come home or go to his brother Kyle's house since Kyle lived nearby. She had the same concerns his dad did about him driving so far that late at night. Brandon did try to call Ledessa about 30 minutes later. He made a few calls to her that she didn't answer. Brandon then called his brother, Kyle. He told him he was out of gas and needed someone to come bring him some. So Kyle, Kyle's wife, and their young son drove over to Brandon and Ledessa's house to get a gas can. At some point in all of this, Ledessa went out to her car to plug in her cell phone to the charger in the vehicle because Brandon had taken the wall charger with him. So after this point, she was basically unreachable because she was inside and her phone was outside. Kyle did not have enough money to buy the gas himself since he was waiting on his paycheck to deposit into his account but he figured he would drive out to where Brandon was, about a 45-minute drive, pick Brandon up, and bring him to the gas station where he could buy his own gas. Kyle and Brandon called each other off and on for nearly an hour, with the calls sometimes dropping, sometimes not connecting, and sometimes the call would even go to Kyle's wife. But there was very little information conveyed in these calls. 
There was one point where Brandon said he was bleeding and he was in a field, and he made a comment about being chased by Mexicans in the neighborhood. Kyle asked him if he was on drugs, and Brandon said he wasn't. Now, what Brandon said on that call is going through Kyle's interpretation of what he said, so he could have misheard him and he said something else. Around 12.50 p.m., Brandon called 911. The area where he pulled over and was out of gas was remote, so this call didn't go to some big dispatch center. It went to a local nursing home where the nurses would also work as dispatchers. I will play the 911 call here. It is a call that a lot of investigators and armchair detectives have tried to decipher. 9-2013-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0
Kyle went back out to the truck around 5 a.m. and found that it was still there, and so was the gas can. It didn't look like Brandon had ever made it back to his vehicle. It ended up getting towed by the county around 8 a.m. Searches of the immediate area were done, but they were limited by landowners who were hit or miss about giving permission. The 911 call that Brandon made was a link to him after Ledessa got Brandon's cell phone records and saw it listed. The last time his cell phone pinged a tower was at 1.19 a.m., so during the time the deputy and Kyle were by his truck. And that's the last that was known of Brandon Lawson for nine years. There is a lot that could be said and has been said about the searches and how law enforcement did or did not take this seriously enough. But Brandon's family and case advocates don't necessarily want to focus on the past of what was or was not done at this point because they now have a path forward. Because now, at this point, Brandon's remains have been recovered and they're hoping that with a thorough investigation, they will find out what really happened. Like I said, a number of podcasts have covered the case, and one of those was Colts, Crimes, and Cabernet. But they did something that not a lot of podcasters do, including myself, and they got out from behind the microphone and connected with Brandon's friend Jason Watts in early 2021. They asked, what can we do to help? And a year later, Jason had gotten permission to search a property that had not been thoroughly searched yet. Whitney, Melissa, and Melissa's husband all joined the search party on what was a difficult day weather-wise, and what they found led to the recovery of the remains. I spoke with Melissa and Whitney about the case and the details of the search. It was fascinating to hear firsthand what they experienced, and I'll be honest, I had tears and goosebumps listening to them. So I'm going to let them tell you the rest of the story. Without further ado, here is my interview with the hosts of the podcast, Colts, Crimes, and Cabernet. I am Melissa from Colts, Crimes, and Cabernet. I'm Whitney, also from Cults, Crimes, and Cabernet. So what does your podcast focus on? I mean, it's right in your name, but what what specific types of cases draw you in? Well, we've kind of gone on a journey since starting our podcast. We started this podcast as a hobby in Melissa's kitchen in the worst acoustics ever. And it just started, we just started talking about what true crime cases we had listened to on other podcasts that week. And we decided let's Let's record us talking about these cases. And we started with the big ones. I think our first one was Israel Keys because we started with Alaska. And of course, I did not do any sort of justice to what Israel Keys's coverage of a case deserves. This was Whitney with a Google, you know, not, not a lot there. And we just kind of evolved over the year and a half we've been doing this. We quickly kind of decided that we didn't want to talk about the big cases. We want to talk about the little cases. And then from there, we wanted to do more than just talk about the cases. And we wanted to be more hands-on. And Melissa can tell us a little bit more about the Merlot files. So we started the Merlot files about six months in. And essentially, it was to begin with, it was a way for us to travel, get boots on the ground, to do something during COVID time. But we wanted to do more. 
So our first case, we we couldn't travel very far because of COVID. So we had both lived in Texas and decided to do the Brandon Lawson case. But essentially, once a quarter, we go to the location of the missing and murdered and help families any way we can, if that includes uh, printing flyers and passing them out, doing honking waves, foot searches, honestly, anything that they need us to do within realms, of course. Legally. Legally. <laughs> that's, that's what we do. And now we have completed our fifth Merlot files. Yes. We're on our sixth one, and this this is what we live for is these kind of cases. And when we did this first Brandon Lawson, which we'll get more details into here in a little bit, that kind of solidified our goal with this podcast. And we wanted to focus more on the um, unsolved, the lesser known cases. And when we started season three, it was natural progression for us to focus on those cold and unsolved cases. And I I think I can speak for Melissa that I don't think we will ever go back. We will continue to only do the unsolved cold cases and just continue to advocate and bring awareness to those that people don't know about. Exactly. So it was through looking into how to help with Brandon Lawson. Is that how you got connected with his friend? Because for my listeners who don't know, he has a friend who has been spearheading a lot of the advocacy on the case. He's done interviews before, and he organized searches. So is that how you got in contact with him? Yeah. So uh, Whitney and I were trying to find a case in Texas relatively close to us that we can just travel to for that very first one. Plus, we were a nervous wreck about reaching out to families and this was the first time we had ever done that. So I had been a member of the Find Brandon Lawson Facebook page. And so after working up some nerve, and I think Whitney and I talked about it for about three hours before we just sent the message to that group, hoping it was run either by family or, or a case advocate like Jason Watts. And it was very quickly after we had sent that message. I, I believe that same night that Jason had responded to us and he was actually going to be in town where Brandon went missing like two weeks from the time we were messaging. So it was very quick. Things started moving very quickly from then. And so we set up a time to meet with Jason, uh, of course, in a public place, because we don't know this, this person. We find a cute little coffee shop in downtown San Angelo. And we ask if we can borrow their loft. So we had a private but public space. And we met there we met Jason, who is a high school friend of Brandon's. That's kind of where he gets involved in this case. And his co advocate, I don't really know what title to give Dylan, his friend Dylan, who helped kind of spearhead these things as well. And we just sat and talked for a good hour or so at the coffee shop. Yes, it was it was quite a bit. We had learned some, inf- some information we had never heard before, some we were not allowed to talk about uh, because Jason was the only one to receive that information. And then out of nowhere, Jason's like, guys, do you want to go I'll drive you out to the site because he had planned on going there as well. And we're like, of course we will go with you. So we load up and follow him out there. We, of course, do not get into a strange man's vehicle. We do follow him out there. And he, how do we explain Jason? He is the most gentleman of gentlemen you could possibly meet. 
he was very protective over us almost immediately. So he said, when we pull up on this side, pull as far off the road as you can. Do not stop on the side of the road. He gave us all kinds of instructions. Do not go out here at nighttime. Do not go out here by yourself. Have Don't come out here unless I'm with you. I mean, he had very strict instructions for our safety for someone we just met. That's just the kind of person Jason is. He was like instantaneous big brother. Like he just has that that feel about him. So he takes us out to the spot um, for the very first time. And the feeling, I mean, this was our first time ever being in a situation like this. And it was so emotional being on the side of the road where Brandon went missing and his cross was. And it was heavy. That's all I can, like the atmosphere was heavy. Um, we learned a little bit more about the case and then Jason had to go, he was meeting with one of the land owners in that area so that he could work on getting a search together. This is January 15th of 2021. So this is when our connection to the search begins because this is a year long process. The person he was meeting with is the land that we search later in the story. While he did that, we wanted to go check by the bridge and river that's right down from where Brandon went missing. Of course, we had instructions from Jason not to go all the way down because it is very sketchy. It was very weird. Um, We decided to go into Bront, the town that is just up ahead, get a feel around for that. And then we ended up meeting Jason again for dinner that night to go over just the last few things. And that really wrapped up our our first Merlot Files trip. It, it it seems very small and insignificant, but the it's what is that phrase? It's the smallest rock makes the largest ripples. This is the smallest rock. That evening after dinner, we sat in the hotel and we were just trying to compile our notes, our thoughts, our feelings because you don't want to lose those. And I'm not good at remembering exact feelings, so if I don't write it down, it's gone. I'm not good at remembering anything. So <laughs> so we're sitting there in the hotel and we're talking about the atmosphere. Like Melissa said, it was heavy. And you're, when you're just standing on the side of the road, nothing makes sense. He ran out of gas and they talk about how he runs into the woods. There are no woods in Texas. Unless you are in East Texas, like the Longview where they have trees, West Texas is flat. There, there's no, there's not, There's no woods. But there's brush, there is mesquite trees, there's cactus. So when you're standing there and you're just glancing around and you try to think about being in that moment and where would you go in this instance? Which direction would I run in the middle of the night if I was scared or hiding or confused? What would I do? And you're standing there and we're trying to talk about, okay, what would what would we do in that situation? We're running over all of these instances and still coming up with no answers. The next morning, we we leave. Uh, Melissa has to drive home past the cross again, and I'm sure that was an even stranger feeling. When she came into town, she saw it, and she actually called me, and there is no cell service out there. So it was like she would call me, say three words, call would drop. Call me, three words, call would drop. And she said, I passed it, I passed it, I passed it. I know where it is. And it was just, I wish I had better words for feelings, but I don't. It was absolutely... <laughs> A day we'll never forget, that's for sure. So we go home, still working on our podcast, doing everything. We stay in constant, you know, talk with Jason about anything upcoming. We do end up meeting Ladessa, Brandon's former wife, 
and his dad at CrimeCon in Austin. So that was remarkable. Just putting the family into perspective, like that was the last night she had saw her husband, her father of her children. It, it definitely resonates different than just talking about a case. And we had put our episode out a couple weeks after being out there. So I think we it was February 8th-ish that we released that episode. And then in June is when we got to meet Ladessa for the first time. And like Melissa said, it was very, it just, it connected everything. When you get to talk to the family members, when she hugs your neck and thanks you for talking about Brandon, even though you had never met her in your life, but she sits there and hugs your neck like you're her best friend and you've done these great things. It changes your perspective on this industry. It became something so much more than what we ever thought it was going to be. I guess it made it real. It made it real. Definitely at that point, we were like, okay, we're doing the right thing. Like, regardless of every, any outside thing, we're doing what we think is right and we're just going to continue it. And that was kind of that. And we had done all through 2020, we did different Merlot files, went to different locations, talked with families. But it wasn't until when did we talk to Jason? Uh, it was probably around December of 2021 where he asked if we wanted to be a part of the search coming up. He was narrowing down dates and the date of January 15th of 2022 came up, which would be exactly one year since we had first been there, which is absolutely insane. I had already been planning to move to Florida from Texas, and that was the weekend we were supposed to be moving. It was just a thrown out date, so it was easy to change. Because I was like, there's no way I could miss this. I have to be there for Ledessa. I have to be there for his kids. Like, I, I had to do it. So we just moved, moving to the next weekend. Uh, Texas is crazy weather. So that particular weekend, it was 30 degrees, 50 mile an hour winds. And we all, not we, because Whitney and I would never call it off. But the organizers almost decided to cancel the event and push it off because of the weather. There was a few other things as well. It wasn't just the weather. That was a big factor because 50 mile an hour, it was not 50 mile an hour gusts. It was constant 50 mile an hour winds. And Ladessa wanted to be there for the search. She had some health issues come up. You know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. She couldn't make it. Brandon's father wanted to be there for it. The weather, he's an, an older gentleman. The weather would not be conducive for him to be out in that weather. So they were looking for options, maybe pushing it a week. And I, Melissa, I was like, Melissa, you can't move yet. You're just gonna have to hold off until this happens, or you're flying back the next weekend. I totally would. <laughs> we decided to go through with it. There was nine of us total that were able to meet there. Uh, Melissa, myself, Jason, Melissa's husband, Chris, I don't know why I put Jason in front of Chris. Sorry, Chris. Dylan was there. So that's five, us five, essentially three Colts Crimes Cabernet members two of the case advocates, and then some amazing other volunteers came forward that have been following Brandon's case and just friends of Jason, really. I, I don't I don't really remember how they were all connected, but... I think some of them met on Reddit with the Brandon Lawson case, um, just messaging back and forth. Brandon's case really stuck with them, and that's how they ended up reaching out to, to Jason and getting connected that way. It was actually one of the, the gentleman's birthdays, and he was out there in that cold as well. It's nice to see that people are taking their interest in true crime into, you know, on the ground advocacy and doing the work. Do you know why it took so long 
to get permission from the landowner? There's a few different things that that caused some issues with that. One, the property owners changed ownership. So the property was sold. It's not a homestead. There's no homes out there. It's just open land. It's usually used for hunting leases. So there aren't people regularly on it. And the both sets of owners of the land don't live locally. So they didn't know anything about Brandon's case. They didn't know anything about what was going on. So there was no urgency to cover this piece of land. And multiple brothers own this particular land. So I think it was a lot of back and forth. Oh, get permission from this one. Get permission. Some didn't want to. Some were okay with it. Some were concerned with liability issues. You know, it was tossed out there. Well, we can have volunteers sign waivers or liability waivers because the terrain is unforgiving. We talked about how it's flat, but it's not perfectly flat. There's ravines. There's, again, cactus. We'll talk more about it when we're actually in the search, the, the thickness of all of the foliage out there. But you can get hurt or lost. I mean, we're looking for a missing person. It's very easy to get turned around out there. So I think that was a big issue with property owners. If the ones before it did know about it, they they didn't want any part of someone else getting hurt out there. And I just don't think there was enough push until Jason was like, I need to find my friend. I'm going to keep bugging you until you let me do this. And finally, the the newer landowners were like, yes, do what you need to do. Okay, so you show up and it is freezing cold. You are being blown away. What... What did you, how did they organize going forward with the search? So we started about 10 o'clock in the morning, all met. Jason Watts had the code to get onto the property because there was no one there to let us in. So we got onto the property, pulled to about, like, do you think the middle of it? Maybe the middle of the property. It kind of has an open where we could actually park our cars. You could tell that it was a trail to get into the property. And then there's like a turnaround section that goes around a deer feeder. So you can tell people go out there, fill up the deer feeder and leave those whoever are hunting on the lease. But it was a strategy move for us to park further into the property because this is a very small town, small town, Texas. People talk and there's already a lot of bad light shown on Brandon's case with his past, with just there's a lot of bad negative juju, I guess you could call it, within that town about Brandon's case. And we didn't want people to know we were out there doing it. We didn't want Looky Lou stopping by or trying to push their way through or media to get a hold of it and it become a circus and us not be able to do what we need to do. So we pull in. We we actually had someone from the search member team bought on eBay the exact shoes that Brandon was wearing the night he went missing similar shorts. So that way we had something tangible to look at. Yes, we had pictures from the missing flyer, but this, it, it kind of gave a different experience. He also had one of his cell phones that he had that day. So we knew exactly what we were looking for. However, it'd been eight and a half years. So my thoughts was, it was slim. It was very, very slim. Even though this property had never been searched before, it's, and still in my mind, it, we weren't going to find much out there. Not with Texas weather. I mean, there's wind, there's Sun, the sun is unrelentless here. The the there's it's been snow, it's been rainy. It went through a drought and a flood, all in the same like same time frame that he was missing. So the thought of finding something, we thought no freaking way. So we initially started the plan. We were going to go all the way to the river and then do a um a, a line grid. Is that what they call them? It's kind of a grid chart where we would we'd stand. 
Yeah, we'd stand arms length up, arms length apart in a line and just move towards the property line from the river towards the property line. And this property is irregular shaped. It is not a rectangle. It is not a square. It's almost L shaped, but it follows along the river. So it's a very curvy L, if you will. And towards the river, it drops off like crazy. It's very, very uh, cliff-like over there. However, the other part of the terrain, we could not stand right next to each other at all at arm length because you would be running into huge brush piles that you could not get through. This is very, very thick and pokey. Even in the winter, there's no leaves there, but the thorns are there. So, and it's so thick even without leaves, you can't see through it. Very, very thick. Whitney and I each had multiple layers of clothing on because it was freezing. And somehow we still had thousands of stickers in our legs. So essentially just started that way when as much, I mean, we did have to curve around and we ended up not being able to see each other all the time, which was nerve wracking, knowing someone went missing in this area. We found a couple of things. And by couple of things animal bones, a lot of deer bones, a lot of questionable random, here's a random rib bone, but it's not big enough to be a human bone. No trash, no signs of human activity out there. And I kept thinking growing up in the country with hunters, I I grew up in that world, you almost always lose something, a piece of trash, a glove, a, you know, a beanie, You always leave something behind, it seems like, because we're humans and we drop stuff all the time. And we had found nothing at this point. And we've we've covered, uh, by 2 p.m., we had covered probably 50 to 75 acres. We moved fairly quickly and we needed a break at about 2 o'clock. We needed a water break. We had not eaten lunch. We had all went back to the cars, had a granola bar, had some water, and tried to regroup because at 2.30, 3 o'clock in January, we are running out of daylight It's going to get dark at 5.30, 6 o'clock, maybe 6 o'clock at the latest. And we we still have tons of land. We still have probably, what, 75 acres to cover at that point? Well, I think it was a 100-acre plot. Yeah, about probably about 50, because I think the whole acreage was about 100. We had a lot of land still to cover. And with it being irregular shaped, and we're tired from fighting the wind and the brush and the cactus, and we're all, you can tell we're fading. (laughs) You could tell spirits were fading very quickly. With it being their irregular shape, Jason had the great idea of covering the smaller portion of the L because it's a little flatter, a little less dense with foliage and brush. And we felt we could cover it quicker and be able to leave a square, per per se, one square to be covered on another search. And so we walk down the fence line and head that way. Within five minutes of choosing that section of land, uh, Melissa's husband comes upon the first piece of evidence that we found. And at first we're like, it probably isn't anything, but we get closer. This is the first anything human life we've seen. And we could tell it's a piece of clothing. All we could see is it's white. So we essentially take a stick, kind of flip it over a little bit, and we can see that it is camo shorts which is exactly what uh, Brandon was wearing the day that he went missing. They were inside out and then had been sun bleached. And that's why it was completely white on top. But luckily underneath, we were able to see um, what they actually look like. Uh, Within uh, maybe 10, 15 seconds after the shorts were discovered, 
another team member found a shoe, which was a Nike Air Max shoe, completely white. It was so intense and so quick. Chris said, I found some shorts. And before people could even walk towards the shorts, the other member, um, Amber, said, I found a shoe sole, the, just the sole portion of the shoe. And it had been kind of embedded in the ground. So, of course, it had to be flipped over to confirm that it was, in fact, a shoe sole. And from there, Jason was like, everyone needs to stop. Like, hold on, hold on. He gets his uh, private investigator on the phone at the time for advice because, again, we none of us ever anticipated finding something. And we needed to know what the protocol is with this. Obviously, we don't want to damage any potential evidence. We don't want to ruin any potential crime scene because we don't know where we're at or what we're doing. We're not the professionals in this in this manner. And while he is on the phone with his PI, Chris, Melissa's husband, is continuing in the area. We've got someone standing with the shorts, someone standing with the shoe sole. And Chris is continuing his look of his area and he finds another shoe. Uh, and this is all within 50 yards. It's a triangle of 50 yards of each other, maybe. And that's being that's being very, very generous. I think it might have been closer to 20 yards from each other. I'm terrible at distances. I'm not not good at that. It was very close together. It was enough where you did not have to yell at each other that you found someone. You could talk in your regular voice in here. Find the other shoe. And from that moment, we all just stop. We absolutely stop moving. Jason's on the phone um, with his PI. His PI says, do not move. I'm going to call the local authorities. He calls the local sheriff's office there uh, outside of Bront. There in Coke County, he calls the sheriff's office. The PI calls Jason back and he says, you need to drop a pin to, so that we know exact locations and go back to your vehicles. So we had to vacate the area. Uh, Chris drops a pin on his phone where the shorts are. We also drop pins where the shoes are and we head back to the vehicles and wait for authorities. The same sheriff that went out the night Brandon went missing is the one who arrived on scene. He got on, he arrived on site. He walked out with Jason. The rest of us stayed at our um, vehicles. Jason and Chris walked him out to the area where we found the items. He marked it as evidence. He felt confident that it was indeed the items that Brandon was last known to be wearing. And then they called in the Texas Rangers. After he flags it for evidence and he kind of does his pictures, what he does for the sheriff's office, he comes back to and waits with us. Texas Rangers arrive. The same basic situation happened. They go out, they check it. This time they bag it and come back to the vehicles. At this point, it's after dark. You cannot see anything. There, so no searches could be done in this, this evening. It was probably 730 Eight o'clock at that time? It was. It w yeah, we were starving and uh, it was, we needed to probably get out of there for many reasons. I was scared of just get driving out of it, let alone walking around there in that complete darkness. The Texas Ranger takes all of our identification, tells us we could not talk about it um, publicly. I don't believe we told him we were podcasters. We did not. Because there's a stigma with this sheriff's office regarding media and podcasters, we were afraid they wouldn't do what they needed to do if they knew we were podcasters. So we just said we were concerned citizens. Yeah. So we gave him driver's license, said, hey, we will not talk about it. Um, well, 
to anyone besides each other because that was all we talked about (laughs) for the first few days after that had happened. Jason did ask permission for us to contact family to because they knew we were out there. I'm sure they wanted an update. In fact, I'm pretty sure Ledessa had been texting Jason saying, hey, how's it going? And he asked for permission to be able to tell his wife and his father and mother, his family, what we had found. So he wanted us all there. We exit the property and we all go stand around Brandon's Cross, where he had last known to be on the side of the road. And we make the hardest phone call I've ever been a part of. He calls Ledessa and has her on speakerphone and he says, are you sitting down? We have something to tell you. We explain what was found. Um, We explain the process that we were at after the authorities came. She asked if any of us had pictures so that she, because she knew what he was wearing when he walked out the door. I'm sure that image is seared in her mind. And we did share the pictures with her. Uh, We also just talked with her. She was, it's the... The emotions, I've never heard so much grief, relief. Sadness. Sadness, yes. So many emotions in one voice. It started off very, very calm. She's like, okay, tell me. We told her. But as soon as we had sent through those pictures and she saw what it actually was, I think that is the moment it hit her. And it was it was devastating. But also, like Whitney said, it, I mean, it was relief. Eight and a half years He had been missing. And in one afternoon, it's completely, everything's changed. Uh, We then had called Brandon's father. That one, that phone call was a bit different. I believe that they were in shock because, I mean, they, they had done these searches before. Nothing ever came from it. They didn't say a lot. His dad and his mother, it was very quiet, very somber. We also didn't share the photos with his father and his mother. We sent them to Ledessa. She did confirm that she said that's what he was wearing, that it's got that's got to be his. And where we're at in this search, we had found nothing that belonged to a human at that point. And we found camo shorts that he was last known to be wearing, the same brand and size shoe that he was last known to be wearing. In our hearts and minds, there's no other possible answer to this. Oh, definitely not. And considering the close proximity to his truck where it was last seen is absolutely, in our minds, it it was Brandon's stuff. Yes, we have to wait for confirmation of that. But after that, that night, we have zero doubts. How long after that did they go in and find remains? It was a little bit of time uh, with the weather that weekend. It was crazy. Again, COVID. I believe there was a death within the Department of the Texas Rangers that prevented a a search immediately. They also had some paperwork they had to do. They changed the investigation from a missing person to a cold case homicide in order to get the manpower to go out and do a decent search. Uh, If it was still just a missing person, they would have maybe two to three guys changing it to the cold case homicide, they're able to get a full team of people out there and do an adequate search of the location. So that took a little bit of time. It was February 1st. So we're looking about two weeks after what we found that they were able to get out there. We were notified on the first that they were doing the search. I think we were notified around lunchtime that they were out there doing the search. And hopefully we would hear something soon. Around 5.30, 6 o'clock that evening, We got the phone call that they had found human remains about 400 yards from what we found. Not far. Towards the river as well, like closer to that side. 
and that it would be sent for DNA confirmation. That's still where we stand with the case. Uh, we're still waiting on that confirmation. You know how those types of things, it can take three to six months. It can take six to nine months. It can take a year. You don't really know. It depends on the lab. So we are waiting for confirmation on that. I, Melissa and I both, even Ladessa, Jason, all of us that were there that day, we believe in our hearts, mind, soul, body, whatever you want to tag that with. That is, it's Brandon. There's no other, there's no other explanation. I learned about your involvement in the search when Ladessa made her post and she thanked the search team and I saw your names right next to each other and I thought... I already knew you were doing searches and, you know, your Merlot files where you're helping families. And I was like, is it? <laughs> and so and we, you know, we've done live streams together. We message back and forth every once in a while. And you've said nothing to me about this. How hard was it to not tell people? It was difficult, especially at this point, we were working with a few other podcasters to do a, a live tour event. And we were meeting with them regularly, once a week. And we would be chatting about our lives. They asked us directly how the search went. And I feel that was the hardest thing because we we essentially just shut it down. We're like, it was really cold. And that was it. We didn't even say anything. Next question. <laughs> yes. We changed the topic very, very quickly. It it was difficult not to say. And it's the people that we're close to, it's very difficult um, so Whitney and I just talked about it a lot on our ourselves because we couldn't say. Luckily, my husband was there and I could say whatever to him. But but yeah, very difficult not to tell people. I, it was difficult to not tell our trusted individuals. I think it was very easy for us to respect the family and not say anything until the family was ready. We are not... We do not consider ourselves a member of the media. We will never be the one with breaking news. We will always respect the family first. And we knew we had prepared our statement. We had prepared everything for the moment Ladessa or the family shared it. We would be there to share it as well. But we were not going to be the people that that shared this news of their family member. I know that there's, you know, there's a difference between wanting to be breaking news. But like you said, talking to your, you know, Tr trusted people because you're also processing this. I went with Josh when we were in Dallas, Fort Worth area, and we went out to some key sites in the Israel Keys investigation. And I was recording and I was ready to capture it. And we got there and it was in completely different emotion than I expected. And it was one of those moments where I'm like, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm not a reporter. I'm not a news person because... It was I couldn't put that aside and not have that be part of the story, because that is something that I don't know that people really understand. I know there is true crime tourism where people go to houses and they want to see where Ted Bundy lived or, you know, they tore down like BTK's house so that people wouldn't go out to it. Like people enjoy that. I don't enjoy it. Like that feels terrible. And I'm sure when you were standing there at the cross, and then you're on this property, I don't think a lot of people understand what that feels like unless you've been there. And I know I didn't until I until I went there with Josh, and it was, and I saw that it burned down house, and it was just, it was a lot. And I know for me, and I, I Melissa, Melissa felt the same way, I believe, because we've talked about this before, but 
until we were able to share it with the world, it did not hit us fully. That night, we were exhausted from the search, um, the adrenaline rush, and then you crash. I didn't process anything for several weeks, and actually until we were able to release it. I released it, or I, I hit publish for our, our page. Um, I sat down on the floor of my office and cried with my dog because it hit then. And then my phone started blowing up and I had to put my phone on do not disturb. And then Melissa wouldn't answer my text message. And I was like, oh God, Melissa's going through this with me. We've got like, we need to cry together on FaceTime or something. We've got it hit all at once. I had to definitely step away as soon, as soon as it became public. Just like Whitney, I broke down. I'm very good at compartmentalizing. But at that point, I could no longer just say that this was our, you know, our secret that no the world didn't know about it became real and it was it was life changing for his family and i just I, it all the emotions we felt and i'm very much i just shut down and don't want to talk to anyone and so whitney was freaking out that she couldn't get a hold of me eventually i was like i'm fine i just need a little bit of time and we'll talk about this later on tonight <laughs> yeah i imagine his family publicly acknowledging the search and what happened made it final, like more than the DNA test. They're like, I mean, obviously, circumstantially, we know what the what's going to come out of that DNA test. But it's just for his family to be like, we are ready to publicly say it is him. I mean, that that's that's final that I mean, I can understand why that's the point where your brain is like, OK, we this is it. We were waiting for the when she did it. Yes, we had confirmation from Texas Rangers that it was fine to say whatever we, we wanted to say. But like Whitney had said, we weren't comfortable until their entire family, their immediate family, their extended family, they all knew from them before they read about it on any type of social media from a complete stranger. So uh, once we saw Ladessa's post and, and we had been in co constant contact with her over that few weeks as well. Just checking in on her, making sure her and the kids are doing okay. She told her kids. It was very quickly that she told all of the kids, which that part breaks my heart too. Um, just having that that knowledge that no, your dad didn't just leave. There's there was something else happening. To kind of springboard off that, I think what was the biggest moment for me in this whole situation is... You know, when we started this, okay, let's be advocates, let's be boots on the ground, let's do something. You know, we always said our dream would be to help help a family or solve a case. You know, that's the dream when you're doing this ad type of advocacy is provide those answers. And we did that. We did it. And um, knowing that we had a hand in helping their family have the opportunity to be able to go talk. Brandon can be laid to rest. They will now have a, the opportunity to go to a place and talk to him, to know where he is, to have a chapter finalized. It's I, I don't want to call it closure because I hate that word, but it gave an answer to something. It may not be every answer they're looking for, but they have Brandon to bring home now in some fashion, some form or some fashion. And that's what's me most meaningful for me is that I had a hand in that by giving some of my time. That's it. That's all I gave was time. And sometimes that's all you need to do. It doesn't even seem like we did a lot. It does not. I'm like, anybody seriously can do it. They could, but they don't. You showed up. We were together down in Mobile, and I told 
you both that I felt like your podcast was going to take off because you show up. You show up for your show. You show up for other podcasters. You show up at events. You show up. And this is another way that I think this is your brand now is showing up because now you're also showing up for the the victims and their families. And that's huge. That's something a lot of people don't do. And to, you know, I've not gone on a search, even though there'll be searches in my area. I've never done that before. And I've been podcasting and doing true crime stuff and working even with victims for a while. And I've not done that. So I think that is a great example you're setting for podcasters to get out of the studio. So I'm curious what's next on your Merlot files. What are you working on next? We just released an episode of the case of Caleb Dill. This one is very close to home for me. It's from a very small town where I grew up. A teenage boy went missing. He still has not been found. I am pushing people that I know in the area. I'm I'm very connected because small towns in that area to push for some some searches and hopefully we can take part of that take part in that. We are having some pushback from the family member of the potential person of interest. He's not been named in that, but if you listen to our episode, you'll believe in your heart that you know as well. And we're hoping to get something from that. We are in process of working on the Daniela Vian case, hoping to get something going with that. Um, she was she was a murdered woman in Mobile, Alabama, and we we uh, possibly murdered, possibly murdered. Excuse me. Her case is currently um, an, an accidental death. So that's what we're working on currently. We haven't quite chosen a case for quarter three or quarter four yet, but. We're just trying to make waves. How, how can we make waves? What other events are you looking at as podcasters for showing up for the podcast at different meetups and events? What do you have coming up? We've got the True Crime Podcast Festival um, end of August. That's going to be in Dallas, Texas. That's one of our favorites. We are very, very excited. I will say uh, I, I will promote the True Crime Podcast Festival until the day I die. It was the best time we have ever had, I think, just networking with you guys. I mean, I will say we had a blast in Savannah. We had a blast. We've had a blast every every time we're, you know, networking together. There's never been a bad time. But getting in that space where you're getting to connect with other podcasters of a like genre or like minded individuals is just so nice. It's just so nice. It is. Especially just working from home and in your studio recording, it kind of gets lonely. So these these meetups and bouncing ideas and advocating for those just is amazing. Yeah, I've definitely had a great time at the True Crime Podcast Festival. I find that it attracts the podcasters who want to network and not just the podcasters who are trying to promote their podcast at the event. Like, I mean, that's that's the purpose of CrimeCon podcast roles to meet. Row is like meeting listeners and promoting your podcast. But at the True Crime Podcast Festival, we're all like, okay, how can we collab? What are you doing? What am I doing? And you're working with podcasts of all sizes and nobody's sitting there, you know, I'm a big podcast, so I'm not going to network with this little podcast. Like we are all just kind of in, it's an even playing field and I love it. I love it. I, I love all the advice we get. We get so much good advice. 
Yeah. I mean, you can come to me with any podcast advice, but if you need business advice, go to Josh. <laughs> like you kind of you kind of learn who knows what they're doing in which areas. I'm just thankful that anyone's able to answer our questions because I always feel like I'm asking dumb questions. Like you can't just Google that, Whitney. Come on. One of the things with podcasting is it's such an emerging field in so many ways that you truly cannot Google it. You can Google all day, what does a podcast network do? And nobody's going to give you a straight answer. <laughs> Nobody will. We did that yesterday. <laughs> and uh, the answer is it depends on a lot of random things. So yeah, so the podcasting business versus actually making your podcast, two totally separate things. And Tons of advice out there on how to make your podcast. Not a lot on the business side. But, you know, hopefully networking, you you learn the ins and outs and hopefully learn from the mistakes some of us have made over the years. Because I've certainly, I certainly have my share of those. So I want to thank you both for coming on. And they can find you at Colts, Crimes, and Cabernet in any podcast app. And I assume social media is some variation of... Colts crimes cab some <laughs> I just start typing at Colts and you pop up so it works <laughs> all right well thank you so much for coming on thank you for having us thank you for listening you can find crime lines on Facebook Twitter Instagram and occasionally TikTok Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for. <laughs>